Welcome to episode four of The Burial Files. If this is the first time you're listening, it will make more sense if you start with episode one. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that mention is made of historical events that listeners may find distressing. On a busy road leading out of Sydney CBD stands a beautiful Gothic sandstone building. It's completely out of place here, a relic of the past stuck between a nondescript apartment building and the city bus depot. It looks a lot like a church, but its true purpose is hidden from view behind a grand multi-arched entrance, surrounded by a pretty garden and framed by a high wrought iron fence. Although this place was built for public use, these days its gates are locked shut with heavy chains. But today, we get to go in. You're listening to The Burial Files, a podcast about love, loss, and the layers of history that lie beneath our feet. It's about rediscovering the places we think we know. I'm Elise Edmonds, Senior Curator at the State Library of New South Wales. In this episode, the railways arrive, Sydney's population explodes, and the cemetery has to go. There it is, it's incredible, isn't it? It's so beautiful. Welcome to Mortuary Station. Three years after the Devonshire Street Cemetery closed, less than 500 metres away, Sydney's mortuary station was built for the exclusive use of funeral trains that would transport Sydney's mourners and their dead to the new Rookwood Cemetery, about 20 kilometres away. It's got the wow factor, doesn't it? It certainly does. Greta Logue, heritage specialist from Sydney Trains, is showing us around, and as soon as she leads us up the stairs and under the archways, we're surrounded by the most beautiful sandstone carvings. And I think the carvings of this place are definitely its most unique feature. It really has that gothic, sacred feeling of yes. the church, doesn't it? Floral motifs spill from the tops of columns. Stars line the undersides of the vaulted archways. And yeah, look at that angel over there. There are angels. On the corner. Oh yeah, that's beautiful, isn't it? Right on that corner. Keeping watch from the cornices and cherubs gazing towards the heavens. That's amazing, that one. That is beautiful. Just beautiful. There's really no specific Christian symbolism, is there? There's no references to crucifixes or saints or anything like that. And I suppose it was built by the state. Exactly. Built by the government. Yeah, 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 so it's a service. It's a government service, isn't it, they're providing. So um, therefore it is pretty secular. Angels are pretty safe. Yeah. Angels aren't really (laughs) controversial, surely. At its peak, Two funeral services ran from here every day, one in the morning and one in the evening. And so if you walk through this breezeway to your right, they've got, you've got the central ticketing room. And uh, I forget the price of a ticket, but the corpse rode for free. Fair enough. <laughs> and then you come out onto the platform area. Wow. It's so ornate, isn't it? And the platform roof covers both the platform itself and one of the tracks. And I think you've got these nine trefold arches which look out into Sydney Yard, which is quite busy these days. In terms of like that balance and the, the golden geometry of it all, like there is something there in terms of how that affects a, a human. We like pattern, I think, don't we? We like pattern and repetition and it's pleasing to the eye. Even with the rumble of the trains out front and the traffic's roar behind, this place is somehow peaceful 
The government architect, George Barnett, certainly succeeded in bringing a sense of tranquility to perhaps our most difficult rite of passage. We're looking at the comparative analysis at the minute, like what other sort of stations are like this around Australia and around the world. And we're finding not a lot in terms of its purpose-built function, sort of in, in rarity values, and also its aesthetic values and architecture. There was ones in London, but they've all been removed, you know. So we're thinking, wow, is this something really rare that we have here and really special? And we probably do. It was 1938 when mortuary stations ceased operating, funeral trains having been replaced by the motor vehicle. Fuel rationing during World War II saw a resurgence of funeral trains, but they terminated at Central rather than mortuary. And by 1948, these services had stopped altogether. Since then, this building has served as a parcels dispatch, then following conservation in the 80s, a pancake restaurant. But today, it stands unused and is rarely open to the public. But 2019 marks a very special milestone in the building's history. So this year, in June, the mortuary station turns 150. That's why we're doing some clean-up, light refresh and conservation works. It was opened in 1869. And I guess at that time, the passenger railway station, the very first one at Central, was just over there in Sydney Yard. And passengers of Sydney were seeing this amazing, grand, ornate stone building getting erected here for the dead. It was about, hey, why do the dead get this an amazing building and we are still in a tin shed? Yes, the first Sydney station was a tin shed and it was built in the same place where travellers and goods had been arriving in the town for many decades before the railway had even been thought of. Before railways, you had bullock drays and horses bringing material into Sydney. Bill Fippen is a railway historian and author of the book By Muscle of Man and Horse. Well, they had to do something with them after they unloaded them. You had to give them something to eat and sleep and before they could return. So you had to have these open paddocks uh, for stock. These were the Cleveland paddocks and they came right up to the edge of the cemetery. And while bulls and horses recovered from their journeys, overlooked by the vaults and headstones of the burial ground, back in Britain, the railways were carrying their first commercial passengers. Oh, there are amazing health concerns because if you did more than, I think it was 15 miles an hour, uh, it was presumed that the, the vacuum would suck the air out of your lungs and you would suffocate. So, like, there were great alarms at, um, at travelling so fast. That fear was soon overcome and the railways quickly made their way across the seas. It really has its origins about 1846 when they started to talk about it and form committees and action groups to say we need a railway in New South Wales. It took until 1855 for the first train to run Sydney to Parramatta. Presumably it was a government initiative to bring the railways to Australia? Surprisingly, it was thoroughly private to begin with. It was the Sydney Railway Company. It was founded by all the movers and shakers in Sydney, though there weren't a lot of men of wealth in Sydney to, to do that. They could see that um, New South Wales was not going to go anywhere without transport to the you know, vast hinterland to bring produce to market and products to the bush, and it had to be a, a better means of transport than bullock drays and stagecoaches. They could see that there was a dollar to be made in it or a pound to be made in it. So that must have been a massive outlay. It would have been a huge investment to make. 
How costly was it? No subsequent railway in New South Wales cost as much per mile, I mean, than that first section. It was frightfully expensive. There was no steel or iron industry in New South Wales. The the timber and the stone for the the sleepers and the bridges was uh, local, but any locomotive or carriage or bridge was imported. But the first part was, you know, very high quality. They sought loans and more loans and more loans from the government and the whole thing wasn't really viable. Eventually, a couple of weeks before the opening in 1855, the government just stepped in and subsumed it because you know, they owed it so much money and it's, you know, they'll remained government-owned indefinitely after that. So I suppose most of that investment went into the railways themselves and not a huge amount got invested into the terminus building itself, right? It has been described as a tin shed, and it literally was. It was a corrugated iron shed. They couldn't afford anything grand. They would have loved to have had their Sydney terminus, you know, in the city, in George Street or Circular Quay or somewhere really central, but they couldn't afford that. Land was expensive in Sydney then. So they settled on the Cleveland paddocks, which is approximately where the station is now. And how did the public actually react when the, the first train arrived in the city? It was certainly um, very uh, oversubscribed on its first day. There was you know, people hanging off trains to, and surprisingly the fare was staggering. Four shillings first class Sydney to Parramatta, which if you turn it into today's money is like $40. But not everyone shared in this enthusiasm for the new railways. There were people, um, Denison, the, the governor, he was of the view that the railway shouldn't go past Picton or Emu Plains, and then from there on it would be horses. That would, would be all New South Wales needed or wanted or ever, would ever need other people. Of course, the, the big name is John Whitten, the, the engineer-in-chief. He insisted, no, the railway must go all the way. By the time Mortuary Station was completed in 1869, Witten's plan for a statewide network was well underway. Tracks spidered out from Sydney in all directions, reaching Newcastle, Goulburn and Lithgow. 500 kilometres of track. I think they got across the mountains in both west and south very quickly. But how they did it, just, you know, with a horse and a theodolite and just sort of went out into the bush and considering the, the ruggedness of the terrain, it's quite a long way uh, and with the, the size of the population and the technology available, it was quite a remarkable achievement. But the challenges proved worthwhile just as the original founders had envisaged. From Goulburn to Sydney, the previous rate was, I think it's £16 per tonne to bring produce to Sydney. After the railway opened, it was 18 shillings per tonne. And instead of taking six weeks, it would take six hours. So it's a pretty profound improvement. So it's understandable. With this incredible revolution reaching out across the country and the growth and prosperity that the railways represented, that Sydney siders saw their tin shed, the hub of it all, as a bit of an embarrassment. The present station, so far from being ornamental, is seen to most advantage when it is pitch dark. It is the ugliest and least commodious structure. By about 1870s, they sort of got wealthy enough and made enough money and decided that uh, we need a better station than this tin shed. So they built the, the second Sydney station. And this was a very you know, elegant building of, of you know, sandstone and brick. 
always bits and pieces being tacked on and added on and, and you know, growing like topsy and, and all odd length platforms and, and very difficult to work because one platform ran off another platform. And, and it actually had at the Sydney end an opening, like a big arch, where the railway would one day go through across the cemetery, across what we now call Belmore Park, into the city. Even in the 1870s, they were talking about the city railway. The station was built with that capacity that was never used. So while Sydney dreamed of its city railway, horse-drawn trams would cart people between the terminus and the city and harbour. But technological developments were moving fast and the horses were soon replaced. Sydney had had steam trams since the Great Exhibition of 1879. These are little steam locomotives hauling a couple of carriages around the streets. Obviously, some of them were in the suburbs, you know, doing a commuter job, but also they were just connecting the railway to the city. Then in about about 1899, the, the new technology was electricity, so very quickly electric trams took over from the steam. Sepia-tinged photographs in the library's collection show that the new stone station, though lovely, wasn't that much bigger than the tin shed had been, which makes the enormity of the plans for Central Station all the more striking and reflected the population growth that Sydney was experiencing over those decades. The statistics are just staggering over those 1890, 1900, 1910. Sydney was growing at a prodigious rate. It was sort of doubling in 10 years. However, the plan for a much larger station wasn't just about providing practical solutions for a growing population. At this time, the very notion of being Australian was coming into its own, and the idea of a better Sydney, a city that citizens could be proud of, that could compete with the cities of Europe, played a big role in the development proposals of the time. A major train station was a crowning jewel of these design proposals, with many parts of the city slated for development, parts that continued to hold major significance for the Aboriginal population, as documented by illustrations and artworks made from the earliest days of the settlement and now held in the library's collection. The drawings by Collins showing an amends initiation ceremony in the 1790s. That ceremony actually happened around where Government House is today in the, near the Botanic Gardens. And, and the, there are later sketches by Conrad Martins that show Aboriginal people actually still fishing in Woolloomooloo Bay. And as Ronald Briggs, curator here at the library, told us in episode one, Aboriginal people continue to live on their land, in camps on the fringes of town. All along Lavender Bay, down to um, South Head. We know that there were small pockets, ca Aboriginal camps around. There was a huge presence down towards La Perouse, huge presence out west around Parramatta. Many of these settlements survived much of the developments of the 19th century. Here's historian and archaeologist Paul Irish. We, we have this sort of network of Aboriginal settlements around that area, but when people want to go into the city and interact, sort of sell or buy goods, that they tend to move to a settlement, you know, really close by. And, and in the late 1870s, uh, an abandoned government boat repair shed just under the shadow of the Opera House really today was the place where they chose to go. It was also possibly connected to the fact that harbour ferries and coastal steamers going up and down the coast north and south of Sydney were coming into Circular Quay and bringing Aboriginal people who had connections to the area. A lot of Aboriginal groups from Sydney actually travel up and down the south coast, so there were lots of family connections, same language even, that was spoken in Sydney, it was spoken practically all the way down New South Wales south coast. So a lot of Aboriginal people from, say, 
the Shoalhaven, Illawarra, even down as far as um, perhaps Batemans Bay, had family links with Aboriginal people in Sydney. But as Sydney continued to grow, government intervention changed the lives of Aboriginal people quite suddenly. Just at the time in the late 1870s when the government is starting to think after 50 years of doing not much in terms of formal policy, realising that there are Aboriginal people who have thankfully survived the wave of frontier violence across the state and that they are getting pressured by a resurgent missionary movement to do something. All of these things come to a head around this circular key boat shed and particularly a parliamentarian named George Thornton who was keen to have the government start to intervene in, in Aboriginal lives and, and he had very strong views on where the government should give assistance to Aboriginal people and under what circumstances. And a whole bunch of things happened sort of around 1881 that causes the government to install George Thornton as the first so-called protector of Aborigines, um, giving him overnight the control of any assistance to Aboriginal people across the entire state. And in Sydney, we see that the place that he determines that assistance is going to be made available is at La Perouse, which was already existing as a fishing village, just as many other places around the harbour were. But because of this you know, continual focus of the government on La Perouse, we find that a lot of these other settlements shut down over the next 10, 15 years. So by the end of 1900, La Perouse is one of the, virtually one of the only Aboriginal settlements around that whole coastal part of Sydney. And it kind of has the effect too, I think, of bringing Aboriginal people sort of out of sight of most Sydney siders. So while Aboriginal settlements were effectively forced out of the city, plans for Sydney's development continued trying to correct the problems caused by a lack of foresight in the colony's early years. In particular, there was a desire to clear the overcrowded slum areas close to the harbour and to provide a workable system for the transportation of goods and people into and out of the city. This recognition that the railway needed to be brought into the city meant that the location for the new station wasn't a foregone conclusion and proposals were made to move the Sydney terminus closer to the centre of town. The two options for a city terminus right in the city, you could either resume a couple of blocks uh, of the city between you know, Castle Ray and Pitt Street or something, but in, in 1880 or 1900, that was no less expensive then than it would have been today. Uh, and the other option was Hyde Park. But you know, the, the people didn't want, they wanted their park. National Advocate, 1890. A very large public meeting was held in Hyde Park today to protest against the desire of the railway commissioners that a portion of Hyde Park be set apart for railway purposes. Throughout this period, as different locations for the station were floated, then cast aside, some of the biggest thinkers of the time were outlining their visions for the city. One of the engineers who had no shortage of ideas was Norman Self. To be an engineer in the 19th century in an imperial colony was to have unlimited scope. And as an engineer, Self designed machinery and structures to meet the growing needs. Annie Turnbull is a former library colleague, now with the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences. Self went overseas in the 1880s to look at urban planning and bridges and infrastructure. He learnt engineering and design by doing. He was self-taught, but he was very practical, and he believed that machinery and infrastructure could solve the problems of, of a society. I feel, yeah, anyway, he, he did affect a lot of change, and now when we look back, we can see that he was an incredible innovator in Australian history. I mean, it's amazing to think that there's this clean slate and that they could envisage this huge city that we would become in the 20th century. 
It must have been a time of great hope, innocence and naivety, but great hope in technology. The resources were thought of as a tool for mankind to use, which was part of that industrialization, the industrial revolution, the lack of understanding of consequences, really. In one of the huge filing cabinets in the library's underground stack are an extraordinary set of original illustrations by Norman Self, including drawings for a Sydney Harbour Bridge which never came into being, as well as a plan to build a railway terminus in the rocks right next to the harbour. They also house two beautifully inked companion drawings. The first shows the cemetery site and surrounds as it was in 1894 when the drawings were made. The second shows the same site completely transformed. In fact, barely recognisable. All the old buildings and cemetery swept aside with a vision for an entirely new and very grand city centre. I think looking at, at his drawing here, it really shows that he has travelled through North America and Europe and he's actually depicted the new central station terminal here, which is very much um, an arched, grand arched building, a bit like, you know, Union Station in, in the States. And also in the centre of the, the view is this very large, uh, possibly government building that he's imagined which looks straight out of the, um, the Congress building in Washington, D.C. I mean... You can see from the image that he wanted straight lines and a broad street so access would be easy. He actually wanted to resume the least valuable land for the tram lines and the stations, which he must see this as. He wanted long distance and local trains to be separated. He wanted to be able to prepare for extension to the North Shore and for an extension to the Eastern Suburbs line. And he also wanted four circular railway routes that I can't see on that map, but that was one of his drivers before. And I think it's interesting when you're looking at this detail, you can actually see that there's tunnels going underground as well. It's a really fascinating look at what Sydney could have looked like if he'd you know, if his plans had come to fruition. Though many of Self's proposals were never realised, the government did agree with him on many fronts, in particular that the cemetery site was wasteland. It had to be cleared in order to meet the demands of the coming 20th century. After 20 years of deliberation, in 1899, the government officially settled on the site and declared their intention to exhume the cemetery. Many of Self's other ideas live on in one form or other today, including an overhead station at Circular Quay and railway tunnels under the city, many of which were started but never finished. I think it's quite strange in New South Wales how many, I could run off 20 railways that we've not only planned to build and then changed our mind, but half built at enormous expense. Uh, and then abandoned. The, the Illawarra six tracks, there's two spare platforms at Redfern, half built. There's, there, there's a tunnel at North Sydney that goes up and heads towards Mossman and comes to a dead end. There's heaps of work that's been done. It's just, oh no, we've changed the plan. You know, we don't want to do that. Not a lot of people know it, but the remnants of one such plan can be found at Central Station. You come down these stairs off the concourse, which is just for the public, pretty innocuous looking staircase, and then suddenly we're on this abandoned, desolate, dusty, dirty, feety covered platform. The heat is amazing. So it's a cold winter's day, and as soon as you come down the stairs through the door, it's like you've entered the tropics. <laughs> 
26 and 27 are the abandoned underground platforms of Central Station. Started in the 1950s, the project to bring two different lines to Sydney's eastern suburbs was abandoned and restarted several times over the next few decades due to recession, legal action and government reviews. In 1979, one of the lines finally opened and we can hear the trains on that line rumbling through the tunnels below us. But the other remains incomplete. This place is also known as the Ghost Platform, thanks to stories passed on over the decades by railway workers, including Eddie, who is with us today. Just to put the picture in your mind, this is literally 85 to 90% completed. Uh, so there's no tiles, no safety, no um, yellow, yellow line, lines. No tactiles, and the track is missing. And hence being, when it got to a stage, a lot of people who were doing the final touches were that freaked out and scared, hearing children crying in the background. They were literally, according to the elderly guy, they were touched or felt they were touched to a stage where they were spooked to the extreme, where they refused working here. And they said, we can't continue and hence why this stayed as it is and no one wanted to continue to work. There is something undeniably creepy about this place and it's hard not to think about the bodies that were once buried right above where we're standing. But however tempting it might be to let our imaginations get the better of us, we're not here for the ghosts. Sabrina, the exhibition's producer and I are here to capture the fantastic, otherworldly ambience of this place as part of the story for our exhibition we're joined today by a couple of specialist drone cinematographers who are going to fly a camera down the length of the platform in one smooth sweep we want it as slow as possible yeah yeah we can just go slow walking speed all the way down but yeah let's set it up and give it a So our drone shot sadly has failed. Uh, it's a pretty little drone but there is so much dust down here that it was just kicking it up in huge amounts and then it kind of overtook the whole frame. So we're going to have to try to walk the camera down the tunnel where the tracks would be uh, with our very valiant operator holding the camera above his head. So we'll see how we go. We're all quite covered in dirt and I'm thinking it's probably like 40 years worth of accumulated dirt. Yeah, that's great. It was good that you were able to keep the bottom of the, the pillars in shot the whole way. It was, that was nice. It takes us a few hours to get the shots we need before we can finally come up for some fresh air. As we make our way back across Central's Grand Concourse, I can't help but think about that first tin shed. Even the building that superseded it in 1874 wouldn't have been that much bigger than one of today's platforms. It must have been incredible for Sydney siders to witness this behemoth of a building rising up out of the ground over the four years it took to build. Looking at maps is one thing, but the best place to get a sense of the scale of Central is from inside one of the station's own buildings. You certainly feel as though you rise quite quickly. Like yes. we've only gone up a few sets of stairs, but already you feel as though you're really high up. <laughs> Round about this time, you start to huff and puff. <laughs> I have no idea how many hundreds, possibly thousands of times, I've looked up at Central's clock tower, 
So to be inside, climbing up the winding staircase towards the clock faces is quite surreal. Greta from Sydney Trains Heritage is once more our guide, and it's not long before we reach the first floor. This is all the roof, the roofs of Central Station. Oh, wow. And I suppose like, just maybe in that track zone, that would have been where the first station was, you know, the old tin shed. So everything to this side would be what they sort of resumed for resumed. the third. That's right. It's a massive site. Central Station Precinct makes up its own sort of suburb. The station is large, huge, uh, 27 platforms. Howard Collins is the chief executive of Sydney Trains and is responsible for the operation of today's Central Station. And it must have been felt very modern when you saw some of the structures like Central Station being built and, and the sort of architecture that was used, um, huge amount of public work uh, being displayed in this new federated country. But I do think it's fascinating. In 1906, we built this beautiful station with 11 platforms. Um, the expectation was this would be fine, but actually, in reality, the growth of Sydney meant we needed a, a metropolitan electric network. And very quickly, 20 years later, you ended up with this uh, new route, you know, going right into the heart of the city. Um, and that really did change Sydney from being, you know, a terminal station into a suburban electric railway. And of course, Sydney's population has never stopped growing. Howard, can you tell us a bit about the capacity of Central Station today? We carry more people on our network than all the other capital cities added together. It handles 66 million people annually, 250,000 in, in a typical day, and it's grown by 37% in the last five years. And every time we put a train, an extra train on, another thousand customers arrive. And that's our challenge. You know, we're, we're trying to upgrade and improve the network at the same time as delivering more and more service to our customers. Yeah, watch your head there. Oh, wow. We are behind <laughs> the clock face of Centre Station Clock Tower. This is the original mechanism brought over from England. This was the best um, electrical technology at the time. So whereas before it was mechanical um, hand-wound things, this was an electrical impulse. And it threw out an impulse every 30 seconds. So it was, it was perfect time because, of course, in early Sydney, time was told maybe from the, the local town hall and then you set your own clock to that town hall clock. But then, of course, when the railways came, they had to run to a timetable and, of course, be safe on the track. So the time was brought from Sydney Station out to where they were going and then that time was set at that local place. So in a way, the railways sort of said, hey, we actually have to have really clear agreement yeah. <laughs> about what time it yeah. is. So eventually, railway time was accepted as standard time. So it's sort of like amazing to me that this is part of that story. From the balconies of the clock tower, you can see quite a bit of the city, but contemporary office buildings hide Mortuary Station from view. Some of Sydney's earliest buildings were swept away with the Devonshire Street Cemetery, 
but Mortuary Station has survived it all. From between those beautiful sandstone arches, its passengers witnessed the replacement of that first tin shed, the workmen digging up the cemetery, the gravestones stacked onto trams and whisked away, then trains bringing the best sandstone, marble and cedar from around New South Wales to build the Grand Central Station. But while the gravestones may have been taken away, Mortuary remains as a memento mori for the city of Sydney. The winged hourglasses carved into the entry gates, half spent, a reminder to us all that time, ticking away in the clock tower above us, flies. Next time on The Burial Files. I mean, the idea of wrapping a guy up in a rug and chucking him out his own back window, it's just horrific. We're delving into the story behind one of the more gruesome gravestone inscriptions from the Devonshire Street Cemetery. Sacred to the memory of Esther and Samuel Bradley, inhumanely murdered by their servant on the 15th of August, 1822. Thanks to Bill Fippen, Ronald Briggs, Paul Irish, Annie Turnbull and Howard Collins for sharing their knowledge with us. Many thanks again to Greta Logue from Sydney Trains Heritage and to Eddie Dayer from Sydney Trains. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and take a minute to rate and review us to help other people find the podcast. If you're in Sydney between the 25th of May and 17th of November 2019, be sure to swing by the State Library to visit Dead Central, the exhibition, where you can see many of the items we've been talking about in this podcast. This episode was produced by Sabrina Organo and mixed by Sonar Sound. It features the voice of Rupert Dago. I'm Elise Edmonds. <laughs>